Now, I'm excited today because today we are embarking on a journey through the Gospel of Mark. So for the next several weeks, and did I say several, several weeks, we're going to uh, look closely into all 16 chapters of the book of Mark. I'm excited for this series. This will take us all the way into summer. And I trust that God's going to teach us much through his word. And I trust that he's going to give us insight, possibly life-changing insight into the servant king. And that's what we have called this series, Servant King, the Gospel of Mark. And this morning, as we kick off this series, we begin with a message entitled, The Beginning of the Good News. The Beginning of the Good News. And before we dive into this book, I thought it would be helpful for us to, to watch a brief introduction to the Gospel of Mark. And so I invite you to direct your attention to the screen. The Gospel according to Mark. It's one of the first accounts of the life of Jesus, and our earliest historical traditions link this book to a Christian scribe named Mark, or John Mark. He was a co-worker with Paul and a close partner with Peter. And in fact, an ancient church historian named Papias, he recalls that Mark had collected all of the eyewitness accounts and memories of Peter and then shaped them into this account. But Mark didn't just randomly throw the pieces together. He's carefully designed the story of Jesus. In the first line of the book, Mark makes this claim about Jesus. It's the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, what's interesting is that this is the only time Mark is going to tell you what he thinks. For the rest of the book, he's going to influence you by simply putting Jesus' actions and words in front of you and showing you how other people react to him. Now, Mark's designed the story of Jesus as a drama with three acts. The first one set in Galilee, the third one is set in Jerusalem, and the second act shows Jesus on the way from one place to the other. And each of the acts focuses on repeated theme. So in Act 1, everybody's blown away by Jesus, and they're wondering, who is this Jesus? In Act 2, it's the disciples who are struggling to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And then in Act 3, we watch the surprising paradox of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. Okay, so you're all expert fine, experts, right? Uh, he talks pretty fast, huh? And so I want to show you that just to kind of give you a glimpse of what's to come in the next several weeks. I'm going to elaborate on what you saw up there because it went by really, really fast. Uh, one thing you're going to notice as we make our way through all 16 chapters is that Mark, he, he displays for us Jesus constantly on the move. Jesus is going from one place to another. There's all this action throughout the book of Mark. And there's a word in this book that Mark repeats 41 times. Think about that. There are only 16 chapters, but Mark uses one particular word 41 times, and it's the word that we often translate into English immediately. Immediately, or like at once, all of a sudden, and then this happened, and that happened. And so Mark, he's constantly 
putting us on the move with Jesus. And as you saw in the video, there are three acts in the book of Mark. So, Act 1, chapters 1 through 8a. All right, so chapter 1 through the first part of chapter 8. It takes place in Galilee. And the question associated with Act 1 is, who is this Jesus? Because throughout the first eight chapters, what you see is Jesus performing all these spectacular signs and miracles, healings. And people are like, who is this Jesus? Okay, and so Act 1 takes place in Galilee. Where does it take place? Galilee. Okay, chapters 1 through 8a. And the question that people ask is, who is this? Okay, where does this take place? Galilee. Chapters 1 through 8a. And the question is, who is this? Good. <laughs> Act 2. Chapters 8b to 10. And this is on the way. From where? Good. So right here in the middle section, on the way from Galilee. Okay? And if the question here by the people was, who is this Jesus? The question here in Act 2 is, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? Over here, the people asking the question, who is this Jesus? It, were, it was all the people who saw him perform these miracles, the multitudes. Right here in Act 2, the people asking the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? It's not the multitudes, it's the disciples. You see, the disciples they see everything happening. They see all these people following Jesus. And then right here in Acts 2, they're like, wait a minute. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And this is an important question because in some regard, they're asking this question for themselves because they realize, wait a minute, Jesus' fate will also impact our fate. If Jesus has to go through certain things, then certainly we may have to go through them as well. And so they ask the question, hmm, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? The third act takes place in Jerusalem. It's chapters 10, I'm sorry, chapters 11 to 16. So way over there in Galilee is chapters 1 through 8b. Act 2, I'm sorry, 8a, Act 2 was chapters 8b to 10, and then the final chapter, final act is chapters 11 through 16. And so this takes place where? This place is on the way from to, and the main focus of this third act is the paradox of Jesus becoming king. 
The paradox of Jesus becoming king. And so one more time, so that you can become scholars and you can go out there and you can tell everybody about the book of Mark. Act 1 takes place in Galilee, chapters 1 through 8a. People ask the question, who is this Jesus? Act 2, on the way from Galilee to Jerusalem, the disciples, they ask the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be Messiah? That's chapters 8b to 10. And then the final act, chapters 11 through 16, the focus is on the paradox of Jesus becoming king. So you are all now experts and scholars. So with that in mind, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1. And we'll begin in verses 1, 2, and 3. Mark chapter 1. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, although the book of Mark does not name its author, it's widely agreed upon that Mark is the author. Mark was a ministry partner of Peter's. By the way, Mark also went by the name John Mark. So you might hear us refer to him as John Mark, John Mark throughout this series. Mark's mom was a prominent Christian woman in the early church. And Mark grew up with many leaders in the church meeting at his home. So his home served as kind of a hub so people would have life group at their house. They'd gather for prayer times at their house. And so Mark, he got to see all these leaders in action, and undoubtedly it impacted his life. Now, I just said that uh, we gave you a bird's-eye view of the book of Mark. What I want to do right now is this. I want to give you a takeaway from the gospel of Mark. Now, I know that sounds kind of unusual. Wait, you're giving us a takeaway? We just started the series. Usually, you give a takeaway at the end of something, right? You eat at a restaurant, you, you get full, and then you take your leftovers to go, okay? You go to a birthday party, a celebration, and when you're done, as you leave, the host gives you a party favor. You never show up to a party and go, where's my party favor? <laughs> right? You wait till the end, and yet here I am giving you the takeaway, and we're just getting started. The reason is this. I want you to leave every Sunday with this takeaway. I want to give you a very practical takeaway, and it's this. True greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. True greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. That's the takeaway for today and every week in this series. And I hope that you will all commit this to memory. You'll have no choice because you're going to hear me repeat this over and over and over again. True greatness 
is found in serving others like the Savior. Let's continue on in verses 4 through 8. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts with wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So here we are introduced to John the Baptist, otherwise known as John the Baptizer. Okay? Don't let the term Baptist confuse you. Okay? There were no denominations back then. So John was not a Baptist. He was not a Presbyterian. He was not a Methodist. He was just John, and he baptized. Okay? And so we'll call him John the Baptist or John the Baptizer or John the one who baptizes. John was like this Old Testament prophet, maybe even a modern-day evangelist. Everywhere John went, he just preached the good news. Everywhere he went, he talked about this man named Jesus. And the thing about John is this. John clearly understood his role in God's plan. He was the forerunner. From the very beginning, John knew what his role would be. He was not the main act, and he never pretended to be. He knew that he was the forerunner, the opening act. And he said that the one who comes after me is far greater than I am. You know, the apostle John, in his gospel, he records John the Baptist saying, he, referring to Jesus, must become greater, I must become less. He must increase, I must decrease. And that tells us a lot about John's character, doesn't it? He knew from the outset he was simply the forerunner to Jesus, and he never confused that calling. Today, I think leaders sometimes are prone to jealousy. Leaders in any industry, business, education, ministry, leaders can often be prone to jealousy, prone to comparing ourselves and our ministries with those out there. If John the baptizer were alive today, and I think if John were checking out the social media pages of his fellow ministers, I think this is how he would respond. He would love every post out there. He would comment, hey, bro, awesome. 
keep preaching it. You're doing such a great job for God's kingdom. And he would do so without an ounce of jealousy, without an ounce of envy, and certainly without an ounce of resentment. Today, it's so easy for us to look at the lives and the businesses and the ministries of others and become envious and jealous and resentful. John had no ounce of resentment and envy and jealousy. He knew his role in God's kingdom. By the way, John's birth was somewhat of a miracle. We don't read about it here in Mark's account, but if you were to go to the other Gospels, you'd read about the miraculous birth of John the Baptist. It was miraculous because he was born to old people. Okay, that wasn't my words. That, that, the Bible says that. Okay? His parents were old. So old, okay, that his dad, Zechariah, when he was visited by the angel Gabriel, the angel said, Zechariah, get ready. You're going to have a son. And Zechariah said, no way. Look at all the gray hairs. And you should see all the gray hairs on my wife's head, Elizabeth. And so Zechariah did not believe Gabriel when he said, you are going to have a son. God taught Zechariah a lesson. You see, because Zechariah opened his mouth and said, no way, that's impossible. You know what God did? He closed Zechariah's mouth so Zechariah could not talk until his son was born. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine that? Zechariah, the priest who talks for a living, could not talk until his son was born. Quite the miraculous birth. You can read all about that in Luke chapter 1. But here in Mark, we don't see any of those details. Mark skips all that. Interesting. He does, however, tell us that many Judeans came to John to be baptized. They flocked to him from the countryside. And this is significant because at that time, the Israelites, they believed that only the Gentiles and only the impure needed to be immersed in water, to be cleansed from their impurities. So the very fact that the Israelites themselves flocked to John to be baptized, that is significant. Not only did Mark tell us that the Judeans flocked to him, what happened was this. Mark also tells us what John wore and what he ate. So let's think about this now. Mark mentions nothing about John's birth or his parents or his family. He just tells us people flocked to him, and oh, by the way, he wore clothing made of camel's hair, and he ate locusts with honey. Now, this is important to know. This past week, I decided to do uh, an online search for clothing made of camel's hair. And did you know that today, 
you can go to some high-end department stores and find camel's hair clothing. And you'd have to be paying a couple thousand dollars, a lot of money for a camel's hair coat because it is so supple and soft. But back then, it was just the opposite. Back then, the camel's hair clothing was coarse and rough and pretty much only prophets who lived out in the wilderness wore camel's hair clothing. Now, I decided also to do another search on locusts. And I, I thought, okay, I thought I'd type into my Google search restaurants that serve locusts. And did you know that there are restaurants today that specialize in locusts as the main entree. Now, let's think about this for a minute. They're nutritious, right? A lot of protein. A lot of protein. And I thought this to myself. I was looking at the menu of one particular restaurant, and I thought, I would love to one day go there and try it. And that's in all seriousness. I would love to go try locusts because I've seen recipes where if you dip them in batter, deep fry them, sprinkle some spices, and even maybe even drizzle some honey, it is absolutely tasty. Who wants to go with me? Anybody? Yes. Good. Good. I've got some takers. I love it. I kid you not, I bet you that they are very tasty. Very, very tasty. And so there are restaurants today that specialize in locusts, you know, these uh, relatives to the grasshopper. Okay? Back then, again, think about it. A prophet living in the wilderness needs protein, needs energy. And I imagine they really, they were sustained by this diet. And so the reason why Mark describes to us what John wore and what he ate was to let us know that he lived a life of simplicity, much like the prophets of old who proclaimed the good news. Everywhere John went, people followed him. They saw him wear camel's hair clothing. They saw him eat locusts dipped in honey. And do you know why a number of people followed him? It's because they thought he was the second coming of Elijah, the prophet in the Old Testament. So they flocked to him to be baptized. And his was a baptism of repentance. But Mark just simply de describes John to us because John is not the main act. He is simply the opening act, the forerunner. He set the stage for the Messiah. So let's continue on in verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Let's stop right there. 
When we read this verse, we might not think much of it, but this one verse is significant. It holds so much importance for this series. What we see in this one verse, verse 9, and, by the way, what we don't see tells us much about Mark's intent, his purpose for writing the gospel. You see, Mark just mentions, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. The New Living Translation says, one day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. The phrase, at that time, or the phrase, one day, it has an element of, I'm going to call it, ho-hum-ness. Ho-hum just simply means uh, routine, you know, uneventful, unspectacular. Mark says, oh, one day Jesus arrived from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's think about this. Here is John passionately proclaiming the man who's about to come, he's going to be much more powerful than I am. And then Mark says, oh, by the way, one day Jesus arrived on the scene. It's as if Jesus just kind of snuck into the crowd and he became just one face in the crowd ready to be baptized by John. Now, it's also important to know this. I'm giving you a lot of background, but it's important to know this. John specific, I'm sorry, Mark specifically mentions that John said, Jesus will be coming from Nazareth in Galilee. Nazareth was this tiny little city. All the important people lived in a different city. The most desirable zip code at that time was Zion. If you wanted to be someone who was well-known, popular, a celebrity, a higher-up, you lived in Zion, in the expensive homes. Nazareth would not even be seen on a map. And yet it was important that Mark communicates to us that Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee came. That was important for us to know. Here's why. One commentator said this about Jesus' appearance onto the scene. Jesus appeared as unpowerful as a powerful one could get. Think about that question, or think about that statement. Jesus appeared as unpowerful as a powerful one could get. The Gospel of Mark, you're going to find out throughout the series, it's all about the paradox of greatness. The paradox of greatness. We'll see throughout the series that Jesus takes the idea of greatness and he turns it on its head. Again, true greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. That is our takeaway every week. If you think about it, in most walks of life today, the, the more success a person finds, the more that person is served by others. Isn't that true? The more success a person finds, the more that person is served 
by other people. But then here comes Jesus, and he demonstrates to those around him just the opposite. True greatness is found in serving others. That's why Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve, to give my life a ransom for many. Servanthood is all about attitude. It does not matter what position we hold. It does not matter what skills we possess. Servanthood is all about attitude. Over the years, the one characteristic that I believe that has best described the leadership of our church is that of servanthood. From day one, when I arrived onto our church campus ten and a half years ago, that was clearly evident. From day one, I sensed the one word that best describes our church is that of servanthood. God has blessed our church for decades with servant leaders. The culture that has been laid here and developed over the years is that of servanthood. You know, the best leaders, the best leaders, they, they desire to serve others and not themselves. The best leaders put others ahead of their own agenda. The best leaders are not position conscious. Have you noticed that? The best leaders are never position conscious. The best leaders never walk into a restaurant and say, do you know who I am? The best leaders serve out of love. In church, I cannot express to you enough how much I appreciate the leaders of our church because they exemplify Christ. Look at verses 10 and 11. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. I have a question for you to ponder internally. And the question is this. Why was Jesus baptized? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why was Jesus baptized? You see, John's ministry was a ministry of baptism, a baptism of repentance. Jesus had no sin. He was sinless. So why? Why was Jesus baptized? We don't read about it here, but in Matthew's account, John the Baptist, do you know what he said to Jesus? He said, 
No, no. I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. So the question remains, why was Jesus baptized? Well, I want to share with you three reasons why. First, to identify with sinners. To identify with sinners. Jesus was sinless. He was blameless. And yet, his baptism symbolized the sinner's baptism into his righteousness. So he identified with us when he went into the water, though he was sinless. Second, it showed his approval of John's ministry. And that was very important. It showed his approval of John's ministry. In other words, he endorsed John's ministry, and that was critical because later on, John would be criticized by the leaders, the religious leaders. And so this was Jesus' way of saying, hey, 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 John, he's a good guy. I endorse him. So that was important. Third, and here's the most important reason why Jesus was baptized. To demonstrate the embodiment of the triune God. To demonstrate the embodiment of the triune God. So in Jesus' baptism, we see this beautiful scene. We see God the Father. We see the Holy Spirit. We see Jesus the Son all represented in his baptism. It is a beautiful picture of the triune God. You've heard me say every time we have baptism service here, it is so emotional and so powerful. Everybody gives uh, an applause. Sometimes it's a standing ovation. Imagine at the scene of Jesus' baptism. The Father says, in you, I'm well pleased. The Spirit descends on Jesus is the most incredible display of God's mercy. So this now brings us to the final two verses in the opening passage in the book of Mark. Verses 12 and 13. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. There's that word, at once, immediately. Okay, on the move. Okay, so picture this. Jesus just came out of the water. Normally, after a baptism, oh, people hand you flowers. People hand you, you know, something, a gift. You might go out to lunch together with your relatives, right? There's a party. There's a celebration. But here, Jesus comes out of the water, and Mark says, boom. At once, he sent into the desert. No time to waste. Now, if you want to read the details of Jesus' wilderness experience, you can go to Matthew or Luke's account. They spell out in detail the temptation that Jesus faced. You may recall, Satan tempted him three times. And each time, Jesus came back at Satan with what? 
Scripture, God's Word. Jesus said, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus said, no, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus said, no, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We don't get that account here in Mark. Again, Mark, he has a purpose. He just, he just wants to go. And he wants to tell us that Jesus has a mission. And that mission is to save souls. And part of the wilderness experience was to prepare Jesus for that mission, to usher in his public ministry. At the same time, there's a purpose for us, his disciples. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, it was an example for us to follow, that we would rely on God and not on our own ability. You know when Jesus walked the earth? Did you know that he was 100% God and 100% man? Okay, He was not 50% God and 50% man. In his dual nature, there were times when Jesus walked the earth where he operated within the limits of his humanity. For example, when Jesus got hungry, he operated within the limits of his humanity. Do you think when Jesus was hungry, do you think he could have, if he wanted to, command a juicy steak to appear? He could have. Do you think when he was thirsty, he could have commanded an ice-cold glass of lemonade to appear? He could have. But here's the thing about Jesus. When he walked the earth, whenever it came to his self, he always operated within the limits of his humanity. Now, when he operated in his divine attributes, like, for example, when he turned some bread and fish into this massive feast, he did that as God. But my guess is this. He probably didn't eat any of that food. And if he did, my guess is he was the last one in line. When it came to his humanity, he always put himself last. How many times have we been to a wedding reception and we find our table and we see the buffet line and we hope and pray that our table gets called first? Please, I hope I chose the right table. Please, please, please. Nobody likes to be last. I think if Jesus were walking the earth today, I think if he went to a wedding reception, here's what I think he might do. I think he might use his deity to survey the tables and determine which table would be released first. And then he would sit at the last table. 
That's my guess. True greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. That's our takeaway for today. And that's our takeaway for many weeks to come.